Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's one 855 Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Mo writes in and says, Hi, Noah. Recently discovered your podcast via the Matrix community and wanted to share a couple of Matrix-powered projects that I've been working on that I thought you might find interesting. Here's a quick overview of the Matrix-powered social layer that we've worked on. And he links to a YouTube video, which I'll have linked for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. But the project is called Noteworthy, noteworthy.tech. In fact, there's two projects. One is called Noteworthy. The other other one is called Chupacabra. And so Noteworthy is an attempt to take the Matrix protocol and make it social. Um, Chupacabra uh, is a Matrix-powered content sharing and discussion uh, client. And so it's a web-based client, and I had a chance to look at uh, the demo that he has, and this is really fascinating. So you have the ability to, to essentially he pastes a link from a, a website and he uses GitHub in his example. And what the Shubacabra client does is pulls the content directly from the web and then it creates and embeds a single HTML file with all of the images embedded and all of the scripts removed. So it's basically a perfect, perfect visual representation of what the original site was but without all of the tracking and privacy potential problems that are there. Additionally, you have a copy of that content, so you can go back and reference it over and over and over again. And then, because it's actually a, its core a matrix message, that means that it can be embedded inside of a channel, it can be responded to, um, those kinds of things. And then the post is directly served as HTML from the home server in a web browser. And so anybody can then continue to view that content, and it begins to decentralize the web as itself. Now, we talked last week about why link previews are dangerous and how they can embed certain elements and image elements um, that, that compromise privacy. This, to me, seems like this is a, direction, a step in the right direction to reduce that. It, the other thing is that occurs to me, because we're essentially talking about a protocol here, we're just at the tip of the iceberg on what can really be done with this software and with this protocol. And it's interesting to see what people can do when they apply their imagination to an open set of tools that exist. And we've seen the same thing with ActivityPub, right? That, that's the, that is the open decentralized protocol that powers open source projects like Mastodon, which are designed from the ground up to be a social network, whereas Matrix is designed from the ground up to be the end-all, be-all communications platform. But because the matrix spec is open, anybody can envision any which way they want to send communication from one people to another. And so what we're seeing here is the exploration and the creation of new and exciting technologies. Somebody wanted a matrix client that worked a lot like Telegram. And so now we have Fluffy Chat. And we needed the ability to be able to spin up chat rooms that non-tech people could use for events without having to install software or go through a complicated account creations. We also didn't want to collect things like phone numbers and so on and so forth. And if you watch the video version of this 
program, you'll see that the chat room has been changed. And we like to start from the assumption that the end user doesn't know or care what matrix is. You as the end user would still, if you went to chat.asknoahshow.com, would still have one of the best web-based chat experiences out there. And the reason for that is because that embedded chat room, even though it's powered, it has matrix on the back end, but all you know is when you go to chat.asknoahshow.com, the room peaks, you can watch the chat room in real time. And then if you want to participate in that chat, there's an ability to sign up and a sign in button. If you choose to sign up or sign in, the only thing we ask from you is a username and a password. Don't require an email address. The difference between embedding something like Matrix or embedding IRC or using the built-in YouTube chat or the built-in Twitch chat, the connection that you make with those individual people, both on the, on the side of people who are creating content as well as people who just want to be able to, to connect with other people, staying in contact uh, is, is difficult or if it is possible, it usually requires signing up on that platform's service. Right. And then you're subject to that platform. Matrix doesn't have that problem because anybody can host a server and any two users can simply join a different room, create a new room, uh, join an existing room and continue their conversation. Those two users are never are never separated. So I you know, to, to me, it's what's exciting about Matrix isn't necessarily that it it solves any big problem that we weren't able to solve with other problems today. I don't think that's where it is. We've been testing it internally at AltaSpeed to kind of see how it works as a work communication platform. And on that, we've paid for hosting from Element and been blown away, frankly, with, with the service that we've been delivered. It's, it's really fantastic. So it's exciting to see that there is so much potential here. And when I see uh, projects coming in like Noteworthy and like Chupacabra, uh, to me, that just shows that we're just at the tip of the iceberg. And so I'll have, we'll have a link to, uh, it's noteworthy dot, uh, dot tech uh, for, the, for, this, for, the, for the social effort. And I, I, the, the Shupacabra will have a link to the GitHub page in the, in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our second email comes in from Paul. Paul writes in to say, hello, Noah. I wanted to drop you a quick note and share a bit of a review. I recently bought a Pine Book Pro after talking myself out of buying one for a while, and now I'm absolutely in love with it. It's far more functional than I ever expected it to be, and I believe that it could even be used as a daily driver with a little patience. I'm an amateur photographer, and I've never thought I'd be able to use it for photo editing, but I was wrong. I downloaded GIMP and immediately without issue, but I couldn't open raw files with the new GIMP, so I had to download an add-on. My first thought was Darktable. But it did not work with ARM, so I went with raw therapy, and that has been amazing. The Pinebook handles photos without issue for my hobbyist needs. I thought about just sitting on this a while, but the fact that there's a Linux-based laptop out there that most people can afford could be used for a hobby like photography is just too good not to share. The FOSS software and the FOSS laptop on the whole thing is incredible. Thank you so much for talking about all of these great products and projects, Paul. Um, so I'm glad to hear some, some more real-world feedback. I, too, have been blown away with everything I've purchased from Pine64. I genuinely believe if you listen to this program, and there are people that do, and they'll tell me, you know, I, I, sometimes I don't always understand when you bring on um, the, you know, the, the guests all the intricacies of, of what they're talking about, and I don't really know how to follow and, and keep on top of all of the latest tech, what's worth buying, what's not worth buying, what's worth playing with. You know, I, I have a busy day because I'm an IT administrator or I'm a developer or whatever it is. The thing that I like about Pine64 is it's built from the same perspective 
of other people that are working professionals in the tech field, right? So they don't have a lot of patience for things like the, the computer not behaving in an expected way. And so where they've cut costs uh, is, is in the places that you don't notice. And where they've put a lot of time and attention and money is in things like delivering a good screen and delivering a fast processor that delivers a good experience and making sure to pair that laptop with a operating system that's going to deliver a great experience and have a large software catalog available, which Manjaro certainly does. Um, and so all of those things make the Pinebook Pro an incredible laptop for a number of things. It makes it an incredible laptop for learning about technology. It makes it an incredible laptop for somebody who's in the market for a laptop and doesn't quite know what to buy uh, and, and, and wants to try maybe stepping into the Linux space and, and doesn't want to buy that next MacBook or that next Windows computer. This is an opportunity for people to do that. The people at Pine have done a good job. The people at Manjaro have done a great job. And so it's great to see that the community has kind of stepped up around all of these projects and around all of these products and said, hey, um, we support you and we're going to we're going to purchase those products and we're going to try those products and we're going to push them. And those of us that have, have found that we have been delivered far more than what we, what we paid for. It's just a fantastic value. Thanks for the email. Our third email comes in from Dennis K. Dennis writes in and says, Noah, I have a great rig from System76. I've had it for several years and the machine works great, but the hinges and the chassis are beginning to wear out. I have another inferior laptop that I want to be able to keep as a mobile backup rig for work. How would you suggest going about keeping the two machines in sync so that when I have to step away from my mobile laptop, I'll have the perfect clone of my main rig? I love the show, Dennis K. Um, so what I would suggest in that circumstance is to use something like C-File or NextCloud, uh, NextCloud Sync, to synchronize uh, those two computers. Of those two, I'm going to highly recommend C-File. I've had some issues with larger files on, on, on NextCloud. The nice thing about C-File is this. It functions very much like Dropbox. And the advantage is because all of your data can be encrypted at, at rest, both on the computer if you're using Lux, as well as on C-File if you tick the box for encryption, you also have SSL, so the, the data is going to be encrypted in transit back and forth. There's really not, there's, and, and it's self-hosted, so the idea that your data would get accessed by somebody else if you're properly maintaining the server, you've limited that threat risk. So where you get to is a point where your you have a work account and your 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 job when you want to sit down to set up a laptop for work is you sign into C file and it will sync down all of the all of the data that you need uh, and then you just keep that client running on both laptops and you should be able to bounce between either of them now indeed this is kind of similar to what I do I have two laptops one is a work laptop one is my personal uh, ThinkPad and. I try not to take my ThinkPad out of the house. I try to just leave it at home, and it's there for me to enjoy technology, and it doesn't have all of the necessary work tools and stuff that I need to get work done. It's just there for my enjoyment. I have to be able to, at any time, though, step into a work role, and it would be highly inconvenient, if not altogether unmanageable if every time I had to do something and I'm already sitting on a fully functional laptop, if I had to close that, put it away and go and get a different one, right? So I want to be able to work anytime I need to for my ThinkPad. And so what I've done with C file is synced my work folder, just like I've suggested that you do. And all of my, uh, all of everything I need to do my job, things like my RDP sh- uh, shortcuts that, that exist inside of Remina uh, for me to be able to connect and my open VPN connections, those kind of things are they're 
they, we don't want them out in the open. I certainly wouldn't want them anywhere other than my laptop. I certainly want them encrypted both in transit and at rest. But that allows me the opportunity to, at a moment's notice, stop using one laptop and go grab the other one. And it doesn't matter how dynamically something has changed that week. All of those changes are going to be reflected on both laptops. Our fourth email comes in, and this is one I'm hoping the community can help us solve. It comes from Michael. Michael writes in and says, Dear Noah, Linux was invented by a guy from my university, Linus Torvalds. Despite this, Linux support is virtually non-existent here on campus. When we migrated to Windows 10, many of the upgrades went south, and the only rescue was to install Linux by myself. I now use a vanilla Ubuntu 1804 install as my daily driver on both my home and work computers. But there is one issue that drives me crazy, and I cannot easily find understandable information about it. It concerns GPU-intensive tasks, for example, coin mining. I start the GPU-intensive task using NiceTac N19 because I want to continue using the task because I want to continue using the computer for interactive tasks. However, despite giving minimal priority to mining, some interactive programs are massively affected by their performance. For example, it's impossible for me to edit the LibreOffice document while my NiceTac N19 process is running, because the cursor follows my mouse movements only with a long delay. Interestingly, not all programs seem to be equally sensitive to high GPU-intensive computing tasks. For example, the Chrome browser seems to handle it much better than LibreOffice. I've been thinking about writing a script that is watching for user activity and shuts down and starts mining depending on whether I'm actively using the machine or not. It seems to me close to impossible that this problem has not yet been solved by someone since the resource allocation is one of the most central tasks of the OS. Yes, I can limit my GPU usage to 80%, which improves the situation somewhat, but that's not really what I want. What I want is full GPU utilization where there is no user activity and low GPU utilization when I use the computer so do I, I do not feel disturbed. Seems to me this is not too much to ask from an operating system, or am I wrong here? So if you know the answer to Michael's question, if you know how to do that, then give us, give us a call at 855-450-NOAH or send that email to live at asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is Potainer. This was sent in to us by Moonriser. He says, Hi, Noah. I was listening to the latest episode of 204 where you said to try out Yacht, a Docker container management web UI, which at this time, if I recall, is in alpha. Now, I'm fully aligned with the open source philosophy, and my mind is there can never be too many versions or spins of the same core concept as it inevitably leads to better products and more involvement each product has with the competition there is. That said, I wanted to suggest another management software that maybe someone who is looking for an already fleshed out system might want to use. It's called Portainer. You can learn more at Portainer.io. It's a fully cross-platform app that has a lot of enterprise features and a lot of customization options that are present but not quite to the extent that it overwhelms you. You can very quickly and easily pull down images, even specific versions, not just the latest, with a single search and choice selection, and that creates and manages the containers with the default templates without changing a thing if you want. Or you can set up advanced options, things like bind to local storage mount points, instead of using the default Docker storage volumes. It has a nice web UI dashboard, and that's actually what I'm using at home to manage my local Bitwarden and Pi-hole containers that have... Uh, that have it running on a single Dell Optiplex, which of course is running Linux on the host. Now I haven't got a full high availability cluster setup yet since it's just a small home setup and I want to make sure to do a good backup routine, but Portainer does support HA and does tie into instances on other machines for a very cohesive single management interface. Just a thought I'd let you all know about and give it some spin time if you're not familiar with it. Keep up the great work and hopefully see you again next 
in-person self. And yes, we absolutely will catch up in the next in-person and self. So I had a chance to take uh, Portano for a spin and, and kind of check it out. Um, it's a fantastic, very well-polished little product. Here's what they have to say about it. This is the tale of two developers. Like most developers today, both are using the Docker platform to develop and run their apps. This guy is using Portana to get the container environment up and running. This guy is doing the same task the hard way. Lines and lines of instructions, complex syntax, and in a critical environment, the results of an error can be catastrophic. Why pull your hair out over all that when you can use Portana? It's the world's most popular free tool for your Docker-based environment. It lets you execute all the important Docker functions directly from the GUI, and it provides a range of features not available from the command line. Portana is fast and powerful, easy to use, and easy to learn. And with extensions like Registry Manager, Portana becomes a complete container management system for large, complex environments. Portana. Built for experts. By experts. Get Portana from the Docker Hub today or visit portana.io for more info. And I had a chance to play with this, and I have to tell you, it looks absolutely fantastic. And so I'm going to continue to follow the progress with Yacht because, as the as the emailer said, it's just it's just good in the environment when we have a lot of competition. But it's good to know that there are project that there are projects that are tackling this goal from all uh, scales. Our gadget of this week I'm particularly excited about, again, sent in, this one came from the Geek Lab, Alexi and the Geek Lab. You can join at chat.asknoahshow.com. The Omni Power Station that comes in two flavors, the Omni Ultimate, which is a 38 milliamp, 38,000 milliamp battery, and the Omni 20 Plus, which is a 20,000 milliamp battery model. Now, I'm interested in the Omni 20 Plus, so that's primarily um, what uh, what my, my take on it has been, um, but... The, the device can charge at 45 watts from either the barrel connector or the Type-C port. And so this mimics the Dell battery pack that I already have that I really like and carry with me everywhere. It can recharge in under three hours from just about any power source. This is, that's about all the Dell One and the OmniCharge have in common because from there, this thing just takes off. First of all, it has a built-in LCD screen, tiny little LCD screen. So you can kind of keep an eye on power levels and stuff like that. That's very cool. Additionally, it can charge Type-C devices, regular USB devices, at up to 100 watts DC output. Now, this is really interesting the way they've done this. They have There's a battery inside, and you have the opportunity to charge either through the Type-C port, through the barrel connector, or through regular USB ports. Now, you might say to yourself, well, why do I care about the barrel connector? Well, because they sell a bunch of extra uh, dongle cables that go from this generic DC barrel connector to a bunch of other devices that you may have, things like DJI drones, MagSafe 2, a Surface connector, other PCs and laptops that maybe don't have a, a standard Type-C connector. So you're not going to be left out in the cold, and this device is going to work for somebody with any laptop. Of course, it's built and designed around the Type-C standard, so we can charge the, the power brick with Type-C, and we can, of course, take a charge from Type-C, again, up to 100 watts, which is crazy. That's bigger than even the Apple one has. Uh, it supports wireless charging. So you can take your phone and set it down on, on, on top and supports the Qi wireless char- charging standard. And then get this, 120-volt AC plug on that puppy as well. So if everything else fails, you can plug an AC device into the battery. Now, I have to tell you, in, when I first saw that, I was like, huh? Because the... The efficiency of converting AC to DC and then DC back to AC, you're, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, right? So it's certainly not the way you would want to use your laptop if you can avoid it. Um, you know, maybe, uh, 
if you already had it charged up, maybe you could maintain the laptop that way. But it, your best option is obviously to try to use the DC side of this box. Anyway, the Omni 20 sells for about $200. The Omni Ultimate is about $400. So it's not an inexpensive item. But I think if you're looking to have a Type-C battery pack with you, this is the one you're going to want to buy. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. A new Raspberry Pi is out. It's called the Raspberry Pi 400. Now, this is a complete personal computer built into a compact keyboard. Essentially, what they've done is they've taken the concept of the Raspberry Pi and built it into a keyboard. So this features a a quad-core 64-bit processor, 4 gigabytes of RAM, wireless networking, dual display outputs, a 4K video playback, and a 40-pin GPIO header. So again, this is a Raspberry Pi built into a keyboard. What I think is particularly fascinating about this device is a lot of people want to get into Raspberry Pis and they hear about it on a program or they see other people using it. And it's fascinating to them that you can go out and purchase the single board computer and have a computer to do a project with or play with or explore technology. But then you start looking into it and that, well, you have to buy the can of kit because you have to get the motherboard and you have to get the power supply. You need an SD card. You're going to need a keyboard, a mouse, a monitor, HDMI. Oh, that uses the micro one. Oh, we don't have the adapter. Those kind of things, right? And all of that kind of takes away from the experience if you don't have a lot of experience with this. Well, the Raspberry Pi 400, it incorporates a purpose-built Raspberry Pi 4 featuring the same powerful processor, except the Raspberry Pi 400 has been specifically designed uh, to keep the thermals under control, keep the computer cool and silent while people are using it as a general purpose computer. The GPI pins remain accessible, so if you want to be explore beyond just the stock desktop experiment or experience, you have the opportunity to do that. You know, and where when I look at the way that this device is designed, uh, it if you wanted to sit down and plug in a monitor, keyboard, mouse, and it comes pre-installed with an operating system, which I think is another major pain point for people who are trying to break into this space, I think that's a really great design, and I think that goes, I, I think that gets us eighty percent of the way there. Where I think, where I think the Raspberry Pi four hundred is pushing the envelope is the ability to keep those GPI parts accessible um, with kind of what looks like an old, you know, parallel style port, right? And the idea is that you can start connecting this to turn on and off lights and connect it to automation and those kinds of things. Now, they're selling this as a personal computer kit. This is one of the other things I like. They've spent some time thinking about branding and how to present this to normies, right? Your personal computer, quote from their website, your personal computer kit comes with a mouse, a power supply, micro HDMI to HDMI cable, an SD card preloaded with the Raspberry Pi OS, and there's also official Raspberry Pi beginner's guide to help get the most out of your new computer. Uh, As you look over this thing, again, it looks kind of like a a really nice keyboard. It's powered by Type-C. It has two micro HDMI ports, two USB 3.0 ports, one USB 2.0 ports, a gigabit Ethernet adapter, and a GPIO connector. Uh, inside, if you open it up, there's a Broadcom BCM2711 quad-core Cortex-A72 ARM V8 processor, 64-bit at 1.8 gigahertz. Again, like I say, 4 gigs of RAM, dual band, 2.4 gigahertz, as well as 5 gigahertz, 802.11bgn and AC wireless NIC, Bluetooth 5.0, gigabit Ethernet. Uh, it's a computer. It's a computer. It's it's it 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 strums a lot of the same chords that were that I felt with Pine sixty four. 
and and this is just another competitor. Again, you're seeing it in the ARM space. I think that's interesting. But you'll want to check out the Raspberry Pi 400. More information on their site. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Probably one of the largest stories this week is about YouTube DL. Obviously, anybody that's been following YouTube DL knows that they've they've come against some pressure uh, as people are using YouTube DL to pirate content. Now, before we go any further with the conversation, I want to stop here and say point blank. I don't believe that that is the that was the purpose behind YouTube DL. I don't think it's what the majority of people that use that tool today are using it for. And I think that this is a sideways conversation to remove to try to tell people what code they can put into their own computers. Um, the reality is this. YouTube DL is a fundamentally awesome production tool that we use at the radio station all the time, that I use on Ask Noah all the time, that I use at home to watch content that is on YouTube, but I want to watch it on a device that doesn't either have access to the internet or doesn't have a good YouTube experience, um, as well as a bunch of other sites. The idea that it's it's just called YouTube DL because that's essentially what it was originally designed for. But the truth is it can scrape video and content off of all sorts of sites in, to include sites that have my content that don't give me a way to download it back from their servers. Um, but the RIA RIAA has filed a copyright complaint with GitHub targeting YouTube DL. And a large number of angry developers and users basically said that this is ridiculous. You can't tell GitHub that they can't host the code for YouTube DL. And so while, while GitHub says that it wants to, wants to help the project come back online, the platform is now warning users that if they repost the code to YouTube DL, they're going to find their account suspended and they're going to be potentially banned. On October 23rd, the RIAA decided to decided on action to stunt the growth of a potentially the entire future of the popular YouTube ripping tool called YouTube DL. The music industry filed a group uh, copyright complaint with the code repository GitHub demanding that their project be taken down for the breaching of anti-circumvention provisions of the DMCA. Now, anybody could have guessed that if you go to the internet and say that you put something on the internet that you don't want to be there and you would like them to remove it, that's not only going to be an unwelcomed idea, but it's probably going to be counter to, it's probably, you're not probably not going to be real successful in that, right? And, and indeed, that's exactly what happened. When the RAA decided that it would be a good idea to sue individual file shares back in the early 2000s, the music industry group became a household name for all the wrong reasons. Famously described as the recording industry versus the people, the legal initiative rendered the RIAA one of the most hated groups online with the target and their supporters recoiling at what many believe to be an abuse of power. Now, this is nowhere near the bitterness experienced by the online in the early 2000s, but the takedown of YouTube DL has caused a significant response online. Dozens of news outlets covered the RIA's decision, and the debates were ignited in tech and legal focus communities over whether or not the labels were justified in this at all. All of this only added to the interest of YouTube DL as data from Google and uh, as data from Google Trends show. Importantly, the action also urged people who maintain, use, and support the software plus those who didn't appreciate the perceived overreach into the open source community as a result, large numbers of people have began to stand shoulder to shoulder. The software was mirrored, cloned, uploaded, and hosted into more platforms turned into images that could be easily shared on millions of sites. This despite the software still being distributed definitively from its own site. 
one of the responses was to repost the content on GitHub itself, where hundreds of YouTube DL forks kept the flame alight. A copy even appeared on GitHub's DMCA notice repository, where surprisingly it remains to this very day. Now, however, GitHub is warning of the consequences of those who continue to use the platform for deliberate breaches of the DMCA. Please note that reposting the exact same content that was the subject of a takedown notice without following the proper process is a violation of GitHub's DMCA policy and terms of service. If you commit a post or content to this repository that violates our terms of service, we will delete your content and may suspend access to your account as well. So first, first things first, right? This is why I speak so passionately against centralized software, against centralized services, particularly ones that are run by companies like Microsoft. But that's not really fair in this case because GitHub has bent over backwards trying to get um, YouTube DL back online. Uh, what exactly is the purpose what are we trying to accomplish here because if you just get youtube dl banned on github they move to gitlab so you shut down gitlab or you get them banned on gitlab well then they start a self-hosted instance of gitlab and at the end of the day we can always create a snap or a flat pack and 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 and, and mail that around or or see that people are finding all different ways to share the software to include embedding it into images for crying out loud and sharing it on the internet the resounding message to me here is clear. The response for the community is that you can't tell me what code I can or cannot put back onto my own machine. And the idea that you can just look out to the Internet at a sea of people who have developed, explored and experimented with technology and look them in the eye and tell them that one of their creations or one of the projects that they've made is inconvenient to making money in business. And so you're going to have to remove that code off of the Internet. You can't have access to that code anymore. It's like trying to put a genie back in a bottle. It just, it, you can't do that. And the problem is people understand the grab for power. And the Internet at this point alone is decentralized enough that it's an ineffective strategy. So if you have a problem with copyright infringement, if you have a problem with people abusing a particular tool and copying your content, Perhaps you might want to consider making it easier and cheaper to obtain your content legally than it is to steal it. And that's not me justifying people who do bad things. Okay? If you want something, you should pay for it. If somebody creates a piece of content and you want access to, to that, you should be able to pay for that content. But I draw the line at this idea that I'm going to pay you for the content and, and, and now it's mine, but there are certain things I can and can't do with it. You'll decide what devices I can watch it on. You'll, you'll decide when I can watch it. And so I'm not going to play those games with you. I'll just go to a content creator that releases, like, for example, Last Noah Show, which everything is released Creative Commons, right? 90% of the time, I don't use YouTube DL uh, to, 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 to try to circumvent any sort of copyright thing. I just use it because I want to be able to watch videos either on my laptop or on my NVIDIA Shield and Kodi. And I don't want to sit through YouTube ads. And I don't want to have a million pop-ups and banners and scripts running. I don't want DRM being activated in my browser and some ugly thing in Firefox that says that every other browser includes DRM, but Firefox lets me know that, hey, you have to enable this on this page. That's something you want to do. I don't want to be tracked. I don't want to be sold to. I just want to watch content. And this is what happens when you centralize a resource you end up painting a target on that resource for the people that disagree with the direction of a software project. And so now you have a very large industry that has just decided 
that this code is bad and shouldn't be shared. And I, I am excited because this, to a degree, this is going to test a lot of the advents of open source software. This is why we tell everybody that there's value in open source because the code is developed out into the open. And so it's, impo it's almost impossible for a project to be shut down. And this is the most recent example that I can think of in where some where a large organization is really coming after an open source project with both guns blazing and saying, hey, we don't want this software uh, to be available. And they're starting with GitHub because that's the, the low hanging fruit. But we'll see when when this when copies of the software wind up everywhere on the Internet, which is exactly what's happening right now. Does the RIAA do they back off and say, OK, turns out we can't put that genie back in the bottle. Or do they double down and start chasing uh, these kinds of software projects all around the Internet? And if so, who thinks that's going to be successful? Again, one 855 that's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Plasm System Monitor is a brand new UI for monitoring system resources. It's built on top of Kirimigi and a new system statistics services called K-System Stats, that was debuted in Plasma 5.19. It shares a lot of code with the new system monitor applets that were introduced in Plasma 5.19, but it's meant to be a successor to K-SysGuard. On startup, you'll be greeted with an overview page that's been designed to give you a quick overview of your entire system, and it provides important core resources such as memory, disk space, network, and CPU usage. It also provides a small version of the same table used on the applications page to give you a quick view of what applications are consuming the most resources. Another new feature is the applications page. This shows you all of the running applications as well, with as well as detailed statistics and graphs for those applications. This makes heavy use and grouping features that were recently introduced into Plasma. The processes page is similar to the one in KSysGuard, but they've tried their best to streamline it in such a way that removes all of the inconsistencies. For example, you can now select line chart and display mode for any column that displays a numeric value. Similarly, the tree view may no longer require the display all processes, but now has a simple toggle. Please note that the tree view mode is unfortunately requires Plasma 5.21 because some of the parts uh, didn't make it into the 5.20 release. But what we're left with is a really beautiful uh, GUI for managing and monitoring um, system processes. And I, as the more I use the Plasma desktop, the more I continue to buy into this idea that Plasma... Uh, the Plasma desktop is really designed for people who want the ability to put their hands underneath and, and, and twist knobs and be able to customize. And then they want that experience delivered to them with all of the bells and whistles. And that made me nervous at first when I first started using KDE because it felt like there were so many things that didn't quite work right in de other desktop environments that I was skeptical. All of these bells and whistles were going to be there. But when I install things like Plasma System Monitor, and I, and I look at the direction of, of where this project is going, where the desktop environment is going. To me, it feels like the most robust place on Linux. And, and tools like this, they're impressive. They're impressive in front of clients. They're impressive in front of other Linux users. They're impressive even to me just to get that kind of information about my laptop and be able to just have kind of a global overview. Here's where my system's at. Here much, here's how much memory I have. Here's how much disk space I have. And, you know, over the years, most of us who have used Linux on a day-to-day -day basis we come up with the tools and resources that we need to be able to manage the system. And so I'm a big fan of GNOME Disks, for example. And so oftentimes, even if it's a, a KDE desktop environment, I'll have access to GNOME Disks. I like the partition 
partition manager better. But um, having having those kinds of really well polished UI tools, particularly that give you more insight about uh, about your about the running machine, is fantastic. And the, and again, the other thing I like about it is it doesn't you don't necessarily have to be using this um, on any one. Uh, distro, right? Any distro that supports a KDE desktop, it's you know it's going to work. And so I have uh, still my uh, my Fedora KDE machine um, that I've been playing with, and being able to try uh, try these tools out and have a similar tool set that works from one machine to the other, it's really fantastic. Really enjoying it. So make sure to check out Plasma System Monitor. We'll have a link to the uh, to the announcement post as well as how to install the application on your system. You can find that at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Purism has announced the release of the Librem Mini V2. This is essentially an Intel NUC competitor, an Intel Core i7-1051U, uh, an Intel UHD Graphics 620, maximum of up to 64 gigabytes of RAM, NVMe storage, one HDMI port, uh, two 4K display ports uh, at 4K at 60 hertz. Uh, this again, it, it, everybody is trying to move away from the concept of a traditional desktop and some companies are going the mobile route and a lot of companies are going the same route. Kind of what we talked about with the Raspberry Pi story is, can we build fully functioning computers into smaller devices? And so you've seen this trend with Apple and things like the Mac mini, and that has become kind of a staple in a lot of areas for when somebody just needs a reliable machine, they want to plug it in. That's that has become a, a, a machine that you see a lot. I think what you're seeing with Librem and uh, with from companies like Purism and System76 and really all hardware manufacturers is they want to compete in that space. They want to have the ability to have a very powerful machine in a very small box. And so you can get 64 gigabytes of RAM and NVMe storage and have the opportunity to do things like emulate a hypervisor and run VMs and run Docker and containers and test essentially what would be a server workflow on a very small device. And so my work laptop died uh, this week and, and had to be sent back to the manufacturer for service. And so I've been on a temporary one. And man, if I haven't felt the difference uh, between having a, a computer that that's that's a really powerful workstation that's designed to be a desktop replacement and, uh, you know, your traditional laptop. And so as I take a look at this Libra Mini 2, I have to ask myself, if you're a person that has a very heavy development workflow or you're a person that has, uh, you know, a very system administrative intensive workflow and you do the majority of your work on Linux, do you look at something like this? Do you look at something like the Libra Mini V2 and ask yourself, is this the kind of small workstation that I could that I could put to to work for me? KDE.org is now using Hugo. If you're not familiar with Hugo, Hugo is a fast, modern static site generator written in Go. It provides a few improvements over the old system that were using plain PHP. A large part of the work uh, was done during GSOC 2020 and this massive work converting the repository storing more than 20 years worth of KDE history. The website is now generated once and no longer uses PHP to generate itself at runtime. This improved the loading speed of the website but the speed boost is not, is, is not significant since the PHP code used before was quite small and KDE servers were quite powerful. But the biggest improvement comes in terms of features. They're now working with markdown files instead of raw HTML files. And this, of course, makes the life of the promo team much easier. The inspiralization of the website now creates a unique URL per language. And this should allow Google to link to the version of the website that you're using in the correct language, a French, Ukrainian uh, Catalan, Dutch, and a few more languages are already available 
but there's also a proper language selector if they don't if they need to manually tag each string for translation. There is now an RSS feed as well as a latest announcements. Another big improvement is that the announcement list is auto-generated and no longer modified no longer is required to be modified by hand with the help of release scripts. Another nice change is the website developers is now the SCSS code for the individual pages is located in kde.org directory itself instead of another repository. Overall, the developer experience is much better and there's no need to set up an Apache server and the PHP configs to include the capacity frameworks just to get the website up and running locally. Now, you only need to download the Hugo binary from their release page and get it up on the repo. So I highlight the story for a couple of reasons. First is it looks absolutely fantastic. So head over to kde.org and check out their uh, their their new website. But the other thing is Hugo. I we've been playing with Hugo at Ultaspeed to kind of get our heads wrapped around it. And the so there's two basically there's two schools of thought when it comes to to website generation. It is you can go the dynamic route or the static route. So the dynamic route are things like WordPress where you make changes and they're instantly available. The static generator is essentially it lowers the security uh or it it, it raises the security bar lowers the threat vector a little bit because the site is only being built one time and it's usually built from uh, from a code repository. And so the way it works is you treat markdown files just like you would treat code and you push changes and commit them to a repo. And then on a server, the server automatically downloads that GitHub repository and those markdown files. And Hugo then converts those, takes those markdown files and renders them as HTML. So when you want to make a change to a website, it's the same, it's the same process as you would for making change to a code. Additionally, it also means that you can set up uh, scripting systems. And so you can have a, a computer setup, and this is indeed how we manage the altaspeed.com website, have a machine that's set up and has all of those pages individually loaded. And the, the people that marketing people can go through and update Markdown because it's a fairly simple concept to get their heads wrapped around. And then we can script all of the, all of the committing and changing and, and, and pushing and script all of the, uh, the, the repository cl- cloning from, the server side, and then script Hugo actually building the site. And so it, it it's a more slightly more secure way to do it. Now, it doesn't have all of the plugins and fancy features that you're going to have with something like a WordPress site uh, because it's not as robust. Um, but it's a lot less uh, overhead, I guess, to get your head wrapped around and to try to get a site up and running and looking really decent. Additionally, Hugo also has a number of different templates, so getting started is is pretty fast and easy. So as I kind of looked at Hugo and, and as we've been playing with it, and I've been very impressed with what we've been able to accomplish with it, Nikolai is another good one, another static generator, just a competitor, same kind of same kind of deal, but from a different place. As I look at those two projects and as I have an experience, as I have the time to kind of play with them, um, what I've come to is if you're looking for a place to get started with websites, uh, Hugo's not a bad way to go. And the more I see sites like KDE.org changing over to that, it's it's I like that that is the direction that simple sites are going. And, you know, when you need a more complicated site, I'm glad that WordPress is an open source alternative for more complicated websites. You can learn more at GoHugo.io. Google's Project Zero says that hackers have been actively exploiting a Windows Zero day that isn't likely to be patched until almost 
two weeks from now. In keeping with the longstanding policy, Google's vulnerability research group gave Microsoft a seven-day deadline to fix a security flaw because it's under active exploit. Normally, Project Zero discloses vulnerabilities after 90 days or when a patch becomes available, whichever comes first. CVE 2020-117087, as the vulnerability is now tracked, allows attackers to escalate system privileges. Attackers were combining an exploit for a with a separate one targeting the recently fixed flaw in Chrome. The former allowed the latter to escape a security sandbox so that the latter could execute code on vulnerable uh, machines. CVE 2020-1170-87 stems from a buffer overflow in part of Windows used for cryptographic functions. Its input-output controllers can be used to pipe data into or out of Windows, and this allows code execution. Friday's post indicated that the flaw is in Windows 7, Windows 10, but made no references to other versions. The Windows kernel cryptographic driver cng.sys exposes slash device slash cng device to user mode programs and supports a variety of IOCTL with non-trivial input structures. Friday's Project Zero Post says it constitutes a local accessible attack surface that can be exploited privilege escalation, such as the sandbox escape. The technical write-up included the proof of concept code so people can crash Windows 10 machines. The Chrome flaw that was combined with CV 2020 uh resided in the free type font rendering library that's included in Chrome and its applications from other developers. The free type flaw was fixed 11 days ago, but it's not clear if all of the programs that use free type have been updated to incorporate the patch. Project Zero said that it expects Microsoft to patch the vulnerability on November 10th, which coincides with this month's update Tuesday. In a statement, Microsoft officials wrote, quote, Microsoft has a customer commitment to investigate reported security issues and update impacted devices to protect customers. While we work to meet all of the researchers' deadline for disclosures, including short-term deadlines like this scenario, developing a security update is a balance between timeliness and quality. And our ultimate goal is to help ensure the maximum customer protection with minimal customer disruption. A representative from Microsoft said that they had found no evidence that the vulnerability is being widely exploited and that the flaw can can't be exploited to affect cryptographic functionality. Microsoft didn't provide any information on steps that Windows users can take until a fix becomes available. And uh, all that to say, I'm, 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 I'm not surprised or shocked that this is something that we're dealing with with the Microsoft Windows platform. This is just, I guess, what we come to expect. Zero days from Microsoft Windows platform. Although I, I do think it's an interesting twist of fate that Google is calling them out on this. If you want the entire article, we have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. The music means we're out of time, but we're back next week, 6 p.m. Central. Join us live at asknoahshow.com. Stay up to date with the latest. We invite you to follow us on Twitter. You can do that by following at asknoahshow. Huge thanks to Ben, our producer, JT, our executive producer, Sarah, our call screener. We'll see you back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. <laughs>